Automated Daydreaming, The Five Lives of Bricker Cable Juice Written by William Pauley III Narrated by Connor Brannigan Channel 14 Demolition Yaw Yaw For weeks after the installation of the dial, Every time I'd tune into Channel 14, all I would see was a lone phone booth in the middle of a desert. No matter how long I'd watch, that's all I'd ever see. It wasn't until the phone started ringing that the following visions came. Part 1 Unconscious The heat from the sun licked at my face, blistering flesh with every lash of its fiery whip. Lying flat with the horizon, my back was flat against the hot white sands of the desert, and the heat grew so intense my flesh bubbled despite being protected by a thick red leather jacket. By the time I awakened, my body had cooked for so long that the whole goddamn desert smelled like a porterhouse. The aroma found its way into my nostrils, instantly awakening my senses. My eyes opened and rolled back into my head, screaming back at the daylight. More than just cooked, my body was beaten, bloody, and bruised. There was a hole in my right cheek two inches wide that was leaking blood like a running faucet. Blood also trickled out from the inside of my ears, drying into a flaky crust against my red, sunburned skin. My tongue, dry as sandpaper, painfully pressed and spread apart my cracked, scabbed lips. I struggled to pull myself to a sitting position. As I did, I noticed the white v-neck t-shirt I was wearing was stained with a concoction that looked to be two parts blood, one part motor oil. Whose blood? I wasn't sure. A small vibration trembled along the sand. I cut my hands over my eyes like a visor and looked out into the distance. The vision of a silver semi-truck appeared and fizzled away almost immediately, wavering in the heat, as if it was only a hallucination. I pushed up to my feet. The palms of my hands were protected from the scalding sands by thick black leather biker gloves with the fingers cut out. The top side of the gloves sported a patch of mirrored metal studs that shined like a fist of diamonds under the sun. I stood and stretched, but quickly buckled over from a sharp pain piercing through my stomach. I wrapped both arms around my abdomen and howled feeling as if I'd just been stabbed in the gut with a hot piece of sharp metal. The low hum of the truck's engine grew louder as it drew closer. I had to suck up the pain and get moving if I was going to get to the road in time to catch it. I closed my eyes and took a deep breath before hobbling towards it. I came within ten feet of my destination before my joints gave out and I collapsed to the ground as if in that moment a syringe was stuck into my neck containing just enough poison to paralyze me. The sand immediately resumed cooking my skin, sizzling, and it was then that I noticed the vultures swarming over me like dark angels of death, waiting for me to slip into unconsciousness so they could pick the meat clean from my bones. The pain in my stomach, the hole in my face. Guess they jumped the gun. Had they waited just a few minutes longer to begin their feast, I likely never would have woken up. Lucky me. Huh. 
right. The truck's rattle grew louder, passing me, and then faded away again. The birds dropped from the sky, almost in unison, afraid one would get a mouthful more than the others. They creeped along the sand cautiously and drew nearer with every step. I was too weak to put up a fight, so I just stared into their soulless black eyes for as long as I could, which proved to be only a few short seconds. I remembered thinking their faces looked odd, unlike any other bird I was familiar with. It was as if their faces had all been turned inside out, like they weren't even of the earth, but instead some demon fowl spawned in the deepest circle of hell. Then my eyes closed. A few seconds later, a drum-piercing squeal forced my eyelids open, and the vultures took to the sky again. The truck driver was braking. The stench of burnt tire rubber polluted the air as the truck was thrown into reverse. Part 2 The driver stopped for gas an hour or so down the road. We didn't talk much. As I discovered, I didn't know anything at all about what I was doing out in the desert, and that was the only question he ever asked me. Guess he figured I wasn't much for talking, and left it at that. Truth be told, I wasn't even sure myself if I was much of a talker, as I wasn't aware of my own identity. As far I figured, I was born right there on the sand, just moments before he picked me up. I wondered if I was even meant to be anything at all. Perhaps I was molded and placed in the world by God himself as a way to feed the vultures. Maybe that's how it all worked. God intervened and things survived. These thoughts got me wondering if I was a religious man before the desert. If I had even existed before the desert, that is. When the driver stopped, I took a look at the fuel gauge and saw the tank was three-quarters full. He pulled up to the tank and nodded at the door, silently asking me to exit. He was ditching me. I nodded back, thanked him, and opened the door. Across the street was a small diner. I wasn't sure how long it had been since I'd eaten anything, but I felt close to starving, so I headed over. As I entered, I must have been quite the sight, because just about every damned person in the building stopped eating and stared at me. The whole place had gone silent in an instant, except for the murmuring of a news anchorman coming from a television hanging in the far corner of the room. I wasn't offended by their stares. I'd yet to see the bubbled gore that had become of my flesh, but I could damn sure feel it. I didn't blame them for staring. Hell, I'd be staring too if it weren't my scorched hide walking through the door. I weaved through the sea of gawking eyes, hobbling back towards the door into the kitchen. Inside, there was a teenage boy washing dishes in the sink. He caught a glimpse of me and pulled a butcher knife out from the water, pointing it at me and backing away slowly. I paid him no mind. The pain I was feeling in that moment was so excruciating that being stabbed really wouldn't have made much of a difference. My fingers were so burnt and blistered that I had trouble turning the knobs on the faucet. After seeing I wasn't there to bring trouble, the boy let the knife drop to his side and turned the faucet on for me. I cut my hands under the stream and drank the cool water that pooled inside. Part 3 I took a seat at the breakfast bar. When the waitress came around, 
I ordered only a single piece of toast. It was the only word I could manage to mutter in the moment, toast. Later, I realized the irony. Carefully, I removed my studded leather gloves, which were serving no real purpose indoors except to agitate my burned skin. I examined the defined line on my flesh where my red, blistered fingers met the pale white of my palms. The waitress returned with the toast, pulled the bill from her apron, and tore it up. It's on the house, hon. You take it easy, you hear? The waitress said, then smiled at me. I did my best to smile back. Something crawled out from underneath the toast and walked out onto the countertop. It was an insect, a small black cricket. The waitress sighed and smashed it violently against the countertop with a spoon. Yellow insect guts spurted out from beneath the utensil as its armored skin popped and split apart from the weight crushing down upon it. Goddamn crickets. They're bad this year, she said, wiping the spoon off on her apron before returning it to its place next to my plate. I wasn't bothered by it. I wouldn't have used it anyway. I reached around and tugged on the sleeve of my jacket. It took a solid minute, but I managed to remove the jacket completely. The cool air prickled against my sunburned flesh and almost instantly dried the layer of sweat that covered my arms and back. The feeling it brought was a nice contrast to the pain. As I picked up the toast, I noticed something written on my forearm in heavy black ink. Pinky, 859-279-8094. Part 4 I scanned my thoughts for any trace of the name Pinky. Sun, dehydration, and blood loss was a dangerous combination that proved to be not so good on the memory. Hell, I wasn't even sure who I was myself, let alone this Pinky person. I had to call the number. I reached into my pocket and pulled out a wad of cash, easily $10,000, all in $100 bills. Seeing this much money in my hands was surprising, but it was still second on my mind to the mysterious name written on my arm. I decided it best to push the wad of bills back into my pocket and explore more on that later, but not before leaving a hundred on the countertop as a tip for the waitress. I stood and folded the jacket over my arm and tucked the gloves inside one of the pockets. The people sitting at the tables around me continued to stare at me. Some were even whispering to each other. As I exited the diner, a voice behind me shouted, Give him hell, McKenna! I looked back for only a second, then nodded and walked out the door. Part 5 Just outside the diner, there stood a small rack of brochures, all of them advertising popular Texas locales. I picked up a brochure with the word Descartes written across the top and unfolded it, studying the map on the inside. Texas? Nothing looked familiar to me. I traced my fingers along the map, looking for any clue of my exact location. Reading the names of the surrounding areas seemed to jog my memory a bit. Information flickered rapidly inside my mind, but left me before I could comprehend any of it. I folded the map and stared at the brochure's cover. Descartes. The word was written in all capitals, as if it was screaming at me from the page, demanding my attention and commanding to be remembered. 
There was a reason I picked up this brochure. I was certain of it. I must have known this place. Somehow, it seemed significant. I folded the brochure in half again and tucked it into the back pocket of my jeans. Maybe it would come to me later, I thought, then went to find a payphone. Part 6 Hello? Uh, Pink E? Finn? Oh my god, Finn, is that you? Everyone's looking for you. Jesus, where the hell have you been? Uh, Pinky, I'm hurt. Bad. What do you mean, hurt? How bad? Bad. How bad is bad? I look like a, a deep-fried hot dog. Hot dog? Christ, Finny, we've got to get you out of this shit. This year is it. No more. You win, and we go back to Colorado. No more of this demolition yaya shit. You're going to get yourself killed. Colorado? Jesus, Finny, what the hell is wrong with you? I'm not feeling well. Can't think straight. When are you coming to get me? Finn, I can't take it much longer. I know you wanted me to keep low, at least until you got the brutes off your back. But damn, honey, it's been three days now. When are you going to come get me? The brutes? You shook them, didn't you? Didn't you? Tell me you're at least using a secure line to make this call. Pinky, I'm sorry. I don't know. I don't know what's going- God damn it, Ben! Are you being serious right now? I told you, I'm not feeling so great. I don't remember anything. You killed me, Finny! You fucking killed me! I knew better than to get mixed up with Finn McKenna! Why the hell- Part 7 the line was dead. My first thought was that it was cut from her end, but once I went to hang up the receiver, I noticed it was my phone cord that had been severed. I turned around to find three of the most grisly men I had ever seen, real bottom-of-the-barrel type guys. They cornered me inside the phone booth by blocking my only exit. One of them was spinning a pocket knife in his hand. Well, 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 boys. Lucky what we got's here the man with the knife said, smiling. If it ain't Finn McKenna himself. What the fuck happened to you, boy? Some feller stick you in the microwave too long? The men snickered. The smell of whiskey clouded around them. On the phone, Pinky mentioned shaking the brutes. I wondered if these men were the ones she was referring to. These guys were bad news, for sure, but brutes? No, couldn't be. The name suggested something larger, something more grotesque. But still, I asked. Are, are you guys brutes? My gravel rasp voice leaked. The men looked shocked at first, and then busted out in laughter. The one with the knife put his arm around me and slapped me on the back. Shit, boy, they did you in good, huh? Fucked your brain all up. I noticed the man was squinting as if he was trying to look inside my ear all the way to my brain. I bet that brain of yours is like a fucking fried egg, the man said, and continued to stare in silence. After a few moments passed, the man broke his stare and said, No, we ain't no brutes. We's just men, like yourself, 
looking to get us a slice of that demolition yow-yow pie. Demolition yow-yow? Those words again. Holy shit! It's gonna be easy as hell to get this fuck. He don't even know the damn game he's playing, the man with the knife said, positioning the blade in such a way that the sun reflected into my eyes. Could be putting us on, one of the other men finally spoke up. He looked at me with a suspicious eye. You know, trying to catch us off guard? Come on now, just look at the poor bastard, the man with the knife said. His skin's done melted clear off the bone. His brain's been barbecued. If he gets real close, he can even smell him. He's cooked a good medium well. I shook the man's arm off my shoulder. His face was flushed with anger. He grabbed my neck and held the knife up to my teeth. Now, I may not be no fucking brute, but by God, I can kill a man. Now, I suggest you be on your best behavior from now on, because I can go with the money, or I can go with gutting you. Don't really make no difference to me. Either way, I leave happy. What money? I asked. Shit, boy. You knocked something retarded in there? Yeah. Anyone who turns in a renegade runner from Demolition Yaya gets $5,000 paid in cash. Everyone knows that, said one of the other men, the one with a long scar running across his cheek. Figure us boys could split it three ways. The man with the knife clenched his jaw and punched Scarface square in the nose with his knife-packed fist. Now why the hell'd you go and say that? What? It's true, the man said, feeling for any blood that may have been trickling out of his nostrils. I know it's true. Don't mean you should tell it. McKenna's clearly brain-fucked. Let's have a little fun with him, shall we? But you were the one who mentioned the money first, Scarface said. God damn it, I said let's have fun with him. Stop talking about the money, the man with the knife said, then pushed the blade against my cheek. I couldn't take it anymore. I was getting angry. I squeezed my fists together, packing my bones as tight as they'd pack, and it caused me to feel something inside I hadn't noticed before, some sort of rage building within. Suddenly I felt strong, powerful, and for the first time since I regained consciousness, I felt... Electric. Part 8 The chill whip lash of the southern desert breeze was cold enough to welt skin, had there been any skin around for it to welt, that is. In this particular part of Texas, a nothing stretch of scorched earth called Peligro, not a single soul was around to experience the unique darkness this part of the earth seemed to bring at night. The night in Peligro was black, not dim, not dark, at least not in the way most people experience dark in their towns. Not even the stars dared peek out their heads here. The only light in Peligro came from a solitary street lamp, oddly enough, considering there wasn't a road anywhere for at least forty miles in all directions. Even stranger, showered in the dim amber glow of the street lamp, was a busted-up telephone booth, covered with meaningless graffiti and the windows all broken. The shattered glass glitter sparkled on the ground outside the phone booth as if the dirt was fertile with imperfect diamonds. The sight was almost beautiful at a distance. Tearing into silence, the phone rang. 
The vibration from the ring instantly caused a hundred twitching insect legs to convulse and flitter out from the holes of the ear and mouthpieces of the telephone receiver. The call would not be answered tonight. Part 9 As I bandaged my wounds, I examined my hand and discovered I was melting. What I initially thought was scorched flesh now appeared to be a little worse than just that. I was melting, no doubt about it. The skin around each of the fingers of my left hand was welding together, and my hand had started to resemble a fin, like some fucking fish. I thought about my name, Finn McKenna. Had it always been Finn? Was it a nickname? Was it possible I had had this Finn hand all along? I then thought about the reaction of the people I'd come in contact with since waking up in the desert. Most everyone seemed to recognize me, in this form, melting flesh and everything, which got me thinking I must have been melting for a long time before ever burning in the desert. But those scummy guys, what they said to me. I had to find out more about Demolition Yaya. Clearly I was caught in the middle of whatever it was. My mind was a tangled knot of information, and I couldn't shake any of it loose. However, I did manage to remember the stand of brochures outside the diner. I couldn't recall any of the pamphlets mentioning Demolition Yaya, but it was worth a shot to go back and check it out. I had to untie my knots. I looked at the sky. There was an electrical storm in the distance, heading straight towards the town. For some reason I felt nervous watching the sky as it flickered with bright bolts of electricity, lighting the purple sky a pale pink, then returning again. It was as if my body knew something my mind didn't. I felt an overwhelming urge to take shelter. I buried my thin hand inside my pocket and headed back to the diner. Part 10 I skimmed over the plethora of brochures, looking for any mention of demolition yaya. No luck. However, one brochure did catch my attention. The front displayed a cityscape, with mammoth buildings towering over oceans of people like gods in the form of architecture. One of the buildings was mirrored, reflecting the dark purple sky and appearing almost totally invisible in the photograph. I opened the brochure and found the building belonged to a company called DangerCom, home of Demolition Yaya. I closed the pamphlet. The cover read, Lycoy. A faint knocking sound came from somewhere behind me. I turned around and was greeted by the many patrons inside the diner, all pressed up against the large glass windows. Most were looking up at the sky, though some of them were looking at me, pointing upwards as if trying to warn me of something. I looked up at the sky, but it was too late. Before I even realized I was in danger, a bolt of pink lightning sliced through the air and immediately took hold of my bones. The electricity absorbed into my body, causing my muscles to stiffen, and once the light faded, I fell limp to the ground. Smoke rolled off my body in giant belches. Part 11 Waking was not easy. A nightmare pranced around inside my skull, gripping my subconscious in such a way it felt as if it were pinching it off and releasing it again, like some sort of water hose of vitality. It did this repeatedly throughout my slumber. In the nightmare, 
A hulk of a beast was standing at the feet of a young lady who was sleeping oddly on a marble platform. I say oddly because she didn't seem to be resting comfortably, with her legs folded and turned to the side and her back flat against the platform. It appeared as if she had been heavily sedated and was tossed onto the bed of rock, remaining unconscious and unmoving throughout the entire ordeal. She had not a single shred of clothing on her body. A tattoo of a pink crescent moon wrapped around her right areola and seemed to silently shout at me, demanding my focus, as if to say, This means something. Pay attention. The Hulk stood silent, chest heaving, as though out of breath, but eerily no sound was produced through all its huffing. The only sound in the room was the calm whispering of the woman's terrified, unconscious mind, blanketed under her bated breath. The beast slid its fingers across the flesh of her foot, from the toe's back, and continued to trace the outline of her leg until it reached her knee. Slowly, it parted her legs until one was on either side of her, spread out on the slab like some lifeless bullfrog prepared for dissection. The thing hovering over her had no hue to its skin, well, perhaps a hint of white, however translucent, and upon its head there was absolutely no hint of a face save for two pinhole nostrils and a single eye on the side of its head. I was unable to read its emotions, except through its actions. With one hand gripped tightly around one of her ankles, the thing reached down between its own legs and stroked its dangling, flaccid penis, using its plump fingers, complete with broken, blackened fingernails, to pull back its foreskin, revealing the pale blue bulbous glands hidden underneath. Its chest heaved more rapidly now, but still produced no sound. The beast was aroused, and its cock had grown to be as long and wide as the woman's full torso. The thing pressed its blue, meaty bulb against the hammy lips lining the outside of her vagina. Her insides were much too compact for the throbbing beast knocking at its door. It struggled to push its way in. All the while, the woman remained completely unaware any of this was even happening. The warmth of her body caused the blood in the brute's veins to swell and throb, to the point it was almost painful. It began to stroke itself over her, daydreaming of her wet, pink insides. It let loose of her ankle and reached up at her face. It pushed one of its fat fingers into her mouth and traced the grooves of her teeth. They each felt tiny and precious against the ends of its sausage-like digits. It rubbed the flesh of its finger over her front teeth, gently massaging the soft wetness of her gums. The brute's body throbbed with pleasure. Little flitters of light appeared in the darkness that surrounded them. They revealed themselves to be smaller, malnourished versions of the Hulk. They made their way over to the girl, grabbed at her every limb, and pinned her down flat against the platform. At this point, the girl finally awakened and screamed out in pure horror as the Hulk pushed its weight down against her legs and forced itself inside her. Even though it only managed to get partway inside, it was still far too much for the woman to handle, and she howled out in pain, as if she was giving birth to a full-sized human man, or I suppose just the opposite. More like if a full-sized man was crawling inside of her, a birth reversal. 
One of the smaller creeps attempted to silence her by jamming its fingers down her throat, while another fondled her full, luscious breasts and bit at her side, causing tiny blood vessels to break and rise to the surface of her skin. The Hulk pushed more of its shaft inside her, stretching the opening of her vagina until it split at both the top and bottom, ripping clear through her asshole and all the way up past the patch of hair on her pubic mound. Her muffled screams were barely audible over the freakish laughter of the creeps. The Hulk struggled to push itself any farther inside her, but it didn't deter it. It pushed on. A couple of creeps dug their bony fingers beneath the splitting flesh of her vagina and tugged violently at it, tearing away the skin all the way up through her abdomen. The Hulk was now able to push even deeper, and blood squirted and splashed against its translucent ivory skin with every pound and thrust. The blood ran along the edges of the platform and collected in a wide, glassy puddle on the floor. The woman continued to scream, but as she did this, the creep would stuff its hand even deeper into her throat. Then she'd gag. Thick ropes of mucus dangled from her lips as she desperately tried to catch her breath. The brute relentlessly continued to fuck her wound. The creeps dug their fingernails into her arms and legs and spread her even farther apart, which came easier now that she was quite literally splitting apart. They bit and pinched her nipples and slapped her breasts until they became so red and bruised that her pink tattooed moon was no longer visible. The brute leaned over and gripped the platform beneath her for leverage. It was then able to penetrate so deeply her body split all the way up through her breasts until it was fucking nothing more than a puddle of loose organs. At some point, her heart stopped beating. It had to have, though it was unclear when. The Hulk continued to fuck her, long after death, spilling her juices onto the platform and the ground below. By the time the beast finally reached orgasm, her body was split completely in two, and its pearly white seeds swirled and swam in the pool of viscera and blood, turning the gore puddle a warm, pale, pastel pink. Thick strings of it rolled off the platform and puddled along the floor. The Hulk leaned in close to sniff the odorous stew of meat, blood, sex, and semen. Its cock seemed to swell and twitch as it did this. It sifted through the gore, trying to find whatever was left of her head. Again it dug its fat fingers into her mouth, pinched her tiny teeth between its fingers and broke each of them off, one by one, taking them as some sort of souvenir. Trophies. Once it was finished, the smaller creeps feasted on what remained. Part 12 and the nightmares continued. This time I seemed to be dreaming with my eyes open, as I could see my bed, the sheets draped over me, and a window to my direct right. I knew, even in my dream, this was a lie. This was not where I was resting, or where I was struck unconscious. I was in some unfamiliar room. In reality, I was still out there, somewhere on the street in front of the diner, burning and melting in front of the crowd. Even though I knew these things, I still couldn't force myself awake. I continued to dream. A woman in a white nightgown stood on the other side of the window. 
She was wearing a white plastic mask over her face. She raised her left hand and held up three fingers. I tried to move my arms, my legs, my mouth, but I was paralyzed and silent. Sleep paralysis. All I could do was watch her as she watched me. The woman in the window lowered one of her fingers, now showing only two. She then lowered another finger. What was she doing? Counting down? Counting down to what? She lowered the remaining finger, now holding up only a fist. With her other hand, she pulled the mask away from her face, revealing a large telephone receiver instead of what should have been a human head. Danger, Finn McKenna. Danger, a whispering voice said. The voice was calling to me from the telephone receiver. Still unable to move, I turned my eyes away from the woman and looked down at my own body. My arms and legs were twitching, not unlike those of a dying insect's. The phone was ringing. The phone was ringing. The phone was ringing. Part 13 The phone continued to ring, echoing out for miles, but there was no one around to hear it. It was cold and it was dark, but not in the way a desert should be. There was a presence in Peligro, a ghost, a demon, a haunting, something. Something was there, and it was not human. The phone was ringing. The phone was ringing. The phone was ringing. Tiny insect legs protruded from the ear and mouthpiece of the hand receiver until they stretched so far their tiny black bodies began to slop out of the holes. Crickets, suddenly thousands of them. More legs reached out from the receiver. Cricket bodies continued to pour out in bucket loads. The insects were screeching, singing, playing their godless symphonies for no one. The phone was ringing. The phone was ringing. The phone was ringing. Part 14 The nightmares seemed to loosen their grip, as I was finally able to open my eyes without dreaming. At least it certainly didn't feel like a dream anymore. My eyes were open, but I could see nothing. The area around me was completely dark. Not even the faintest sign of light was visible. I pressed the heels of my palms against my eyes, trying to rub out the blindness, but it didn't help. For a moment, my heart began to flutter, and I panicked at the thought of the blindness being a permanent effect of the coma. But I decided to rule out all other possibilities before accepting this to be the truth. I swam inside the darkness, feeling around frantically for something to hold on to, something I would recognize through only touch. But there was nothing but the ground beneath my feet, or so it seemed. Cold stones and dirty ground. Part 15 I found a staircase hidden in the darkness. I crawled up on my hands and knees, staring blankly into the blackness before me, feeling the walls, the wood of the stairs, the air above me. I felt as if I were a ghost, a wisp of ectoplasm hanging in darkness. My fingertips were acting as my eyes. 
At the top of the staircase I came to a dead end. The stairs led straight into a cold stone wall. A stairway for ghosts. There was nothing. As I turned to head back down the stairs, something caught my eye. A sliver of light, barely visible, but it was there, above me. I was relieved to discover that I wasn't blind, just engulfed in darkness. I reached up towards the ceiling, pressed my shoulder against it, and heaved. The wooden boards lifted, revealing a secret. It was not a ceiling at all, but rather a hidden door. I swung the door open and it crashed against the floor on the other side. A handful of dust took flight and sparkled in the daylight slipping in through the windows. I was in an unknown house, an abandoned, run-down, broken, empty house. I wasn't sure how I had gotten there, or more worryingly, who it was that brought me there. I wondered about the condition of my body, if I had melted any more than before. I looked at my thin hand. It certainly looked worse. A disturbance sounded in the distance, in one of the rooms of the old house. Glass shattered. Someone else was in the house with me. I slowly and carefully walked across the floor, trying to make as little noise as possible. I could hear what sounded to be the rambling of a drunken old man. God damn it, Tom, the voice mumbled, barely audible. That was the last of it. That was it. Nice going, hot shot. I followed the voice to an open room and down a short hallway. I stood at the end of it, back against the wall, trying to get a good look at the source of the voice. I peeked over the edge of the wall. In the kitchen area there was an older man, probably in his mid-sixties, sweeping up glass from the kitchen floor. The glass was wet with what smelled like cheap whiskey. He appeared to be talking to himself. Tom, 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 he said, pulling a cigarette out of his sport coat pocket and lighting up. How'd you ever make it this far, Tom? He paused and took a long drag from his cigarette. Exhaled. Luck. That's all it is, old man. Luck. He ashed on the floor, which caused the spilled whiskey to catch fire. His eyes widened and immediately he stomped the small blaze out with his boots, despite the slowness and carelessness of his stomps. I shifted my weight from my right foot to my left, causing the floorboards in the hallway to creak under the pressure. In an instant, a butcher's knife hurled through the air and buried itself into the wall right next to my head, only an inch away from my ear. Part 16 Oh, sorry. Shit, the man in the kitchen said. Ah, I wasn't thinking. Thought you were one of them. He continued stomping out the fire which by then had attached itself to the bottoms of his pant legs. I reached up, pulled the knife out of the wall, and walked over to the old man. I'll get water, I said, walking to the kitchen sink. It's no use, the old man said. The tap is dry. This place hasn't had running water since... However, for all I know. I twisted the knobs of the faucet. Nothing came out. You always were a goddamn hard-headed punk, the old man muttered, finally managing to extinguish the last of the flames with his boots. Excuse me? I just told you there wasn't any water. 
and you checked anyway. You think I'd lie to you? No, Finn said, shaking his head. The old man wiped the sweat from his forehead with the end of his shirt. It's because I'm old, then. Senile, you think. I didn't know how to respond. Huh? I'm only joshing you, Finny, the old man said, laughing. You think you'd know me better after all these years. I furrowed my brow in confusion. Know you? Have we met? The old man cocked his head inquisitively, squinting his eyes into tiny coin slots. He walked towards me and took another draw from his cigarette. With his free hand, he spread apart the eyelids of my left eye, studying with deep concentration. You serious? The old man asked, smoke leaking out from between his teeth. You really don't remember me. My heart beat so rapidly I could actually feel it swelling through the bones of my ribcage. No, I honestly don't remember anything. Part 17 Smoke clouded the kitchen and drifted through the house. The smell of burning wood overpowered all other smells. The old man cupped his hands over his mouth and blew hot breath into his hands. He unfolded them and placed them over my face. I need you to relax, the old man said. I nodded. Do you know your name? McKenna, Finn McKenna. Do you know the date? I thought for a moment. No. Do you know what state you're in? Texas. Do you know of the war? No. The old man took a short puff from his cigarette and again placed his hands over my face. Do you know of Demolition Yaya? Yes. Well, sort of. Do you know of Tom Stripper? No. I'm Tom Stripper. Oh. Do you know of Polly Pinkerton? Pinky? Yes. So you remember her? I called her from a payphone hours ago. Her number was written on my arm. I think she's in trouble. You called her? Why the hell would you do that? The game isn't over yet. I didn't know. The man wiped sweat away from his brow with the back of his hand and pushed the cigarette to his lips. She's more than in trouble, kid. How long ago was it you say you called? A few hours. Well, I think. I'm not sure. How long have I been here with you? The man looked away, ran his fingers through his hair, and sighed. Polly Pinkerton is dead, kid. Part 18 I had a dream about her. I muttered under my breath. About who? asked Tom. About Pinky. At least I think it was her. Tom pulled out another cigarette from his shirt pocket and lit it with the butt of one already in his mouth. Dreams are shit, kid. They don't mean nothing. But still, it was terrifying. There was this crowd of brutes. They were holding her down, pinning her to the ground. One of them raped her. Tom scratched at the scruff under his chin in a nervous manner. These brutes, were they yaya brutes? I don't know. They were strange white hulks, beasts, monsters. By the end, they were all covered in blood, her blood, Pinky's blood. 
They ripped her apart. Monsters. Monsters. Fucking heartless bastards, I said. I stared off into the distance, lost in the visions of the nightmare looping continuously in my brain. Tom saw the pain in my eyes. I could tell by his silence. It may be some distorted memory. Maybe it wasn't her, he said. She had a pink moon tattooed on one of her breasts, I said. Tom closed his eyes and squeezed the arch of his nose. A moon, you say, he asked. Yes. He paused. Something clearly weighed heavily on his mind. Like I said, kid, dreams are shit. They don't mean a goddamn thing. I shook my head and studied my deformed hands. I'm scared, Tom. I'm melting. Tom looked over at me and took another puff. I know, kid. I know. Part 19 In the morning, Tom stuffed a small sack full of supplies, a candle, matches, a pair of scissors, and anything else he could find laying around the house that would maybe come of use later on. I'd fallen asleep on the hardwood floor, using a dusty old curtain as a blanket. Tom lit his morning cigarette, and the smoke swirled like dust in the sunlight. Kid, Tom said. His voice tore wickedly through the silence. We have to get a move on. If we leave now, we can make it to our brood by sundown. My bloodshot eyes opened and flickered like television static. Brute? What do you mean, our brute? I asked. You're still playing the game, aren't ya? Demolition yaw-yaw? Tom nodded. You're still in, right? He asked. I sat up, tossing my dusty blanket aside. Yeah, I'm still in, I said. Then we need to go. Part 20 We walked the scorched road. I've worried about you, you know, Tom said. Why is that? I asked. They hit you pretty hard on that first attack. I thought I was seeing the end of the great Finn McKenna. It's a scary thing to witness. I was attacked? We were attacked. Sorry, I keep forgetting your brain fucked. Tom lit another cigarette. He smoked as if it fueled his voice. So there we were, in the middle of the desert. We were in Jack's. Oh, uh, Bone Jack's, our brute. Wait, I keep hearing this word, brute. What is it exactly? A vehicle? Well, yeah, I guess you could call it a vehicle. It's the machine we use to compete in Demolition Yaw-Yaw. It's basically a giant fighting robot. All the runners are assigned to one. Runners? Runners, you know. Us. The contestants, I guess you could say. So we're the runners? And you and I, we have a giant machine called Bone Jacks? Tom exhaled, and his nostrils flared and smoked like a burning building. That's the gist of it, yes, he said. Sorry? Okay, so we were attacked? Well, we crossed paths with another set of runners who were driving a brute called Razor Priest. Their brute's attack was simple, but effective. 
It had a hydraulic hammer attached to its top that would swing down and pin us to the dirt, all the while a long, stale spear would shoot out of its side, in and out, in and out, in and out, and stab at us. It messed Jacks up pretty damn bad, and it threw you clear from your station, which is actually a good thing, because the priests thought we were stone-cold dead after that and took off, prowling for its next victim. I know it fucked you up in a bad way, but it's pure luck you are thrown out, else we may not have made it through alive. I don't understand. What does me being thrown out have anything to do with us surviving the attack? Haven't you figured it out yet, Finny? The lightning, the electric touch, the melting skin. I don't know what you mean, I said. Tom flipped the spent butt of his cigarette out into the distance. You're the battery. Part 21 You see, all us runners are here for a reason. We all possess tiny gifts. We are an engineer. You build things. You are the one that came up with the design of your bones. I rubbed the edge of my palm along my ribcage. My bones? Your bones are not bones. Not anymore. Tom dug into his pocket, retrieving his pack of cigarettes. The pack was empty. He tossed it to the sand and dug out a brand new one. You smoke a lot, I said. Tom nodded his head. Yeah, I know, kid. You probably won't believe me, but I'm getting better. Cutting back. I used to hold a cigarette between every finger. Smoke four at a time. Are you serious? Tom pushed a fresh cigarette to his lips and toked up. Shut the hell up, kid, and pay attention. I was telling you about your bones. This is important. Part 22 You replaced your bone bones with lead bones. Your lead bones had become some sort of alkaline electrolyte marrow, some stuff found in reusable batteries. The lightning that keeps kicking your ass was your idea, too. That's how you recharge. But how does the lightning find me? It seems like every time I walk twenty feet, I get hit by it. Come on, Finny, my boy, you're smarter than this. I know your memory is gone, but hell, you should have figured this all out by now. I don't know, Tom, I'm trying. Lightning rods, kid. You've got lightning rods coiled around your bones, and whenever you get hit, you're recharged. And that's why I'm melting. That's why you're melting. I looked down at my fin hand. The ridges of my fingers were nearly non-existent. No one would ever have guessed it was once a fully functional fist, complete with individual moving digits. I did my best to keep the fingers on my other hand separated, but I could already feel them getting sticky. It was only a matter of time. But what about you? Do you have any kind of secret powers? What's your purpose here? What's my purpose here? Hmm. He squinted his eyes and inhaled a lungful of smoke. He held it in this time. I guess you could say I'm pretty good at fixing things. Part 23 The sun was setting again, appearing to choke the life from the sky in the way it turned pink, red, dark blue, then finally black. Death was darkness, and darkness was death. No good would come of the night. I worried about dreaming. 
about seeing her and feeling hopeless again. The visions couldn't repeat themselves another night. I wouldn't be able to take it. I tried pushing the thought deep into the recesses of my mind and continued marching through the desert, thinking instead of the game and my place within it. Just before dusk, we arrived at our destination, Bone Jacks, right where we left it, half buried in the steaming sands of the desert. Well, here we are, Tom said. I suggest we set up camp. We'll head out in the morning. I looked up at Bone Jacks, a mammoth of electric metal, and tossed my pack to the sand. As much as I feared dreaming, I couldn't stand to stay awake much longer. My body was weak and in desperate need of rest. Night, I said. Night. Part 24 Tom? My voice sliced through the darkness and startled Tom awake. Shit, kid. You scare the living daylights out of me. I was dreaming. Sorry, I just have one more question. Shoot, he said. Can you tell me about Polly Pinkerton? He let out a depressed sigh. In the morning, if you still want to know, I'll tell you. But trust me, kid, you don't want to know. Get some sleep. Part 25 The floor of the desert seemed to be disappearing. What appeared to be a black hole or some portal, some direct connection between Peligro, Texas, and hell itself, was slowly expanding and consuming all in its path. Except looks can be deceiving. Sometimes things aren't exactly as they appear to be. Sometimes it takes a closer inspection to really get an idea of what things are and how they got that way. This black hole, for example, upon closer inspection was actually an orgy of insects consuming the earth. It's funny the things we see when we're paying attention. The source of the swarm was inside the lone phone booth. The mouthpiece of the telephone receiver came loose and crickets continued to spill out like a living, twitching waterfall. The crickets screeched and howled at the moon, the devil's symphony. The insects swallowed the desert, swallowed the stale night air, and swallowed the darkness. A devastation swarm. Perhaps it still could have been called a black hole, as it seemed to be just as destructive, though I supposed by definition I would have been incorrect labeling it as such. Somehow, this seemed worse. Part 26 There were no other dreams that night, just crickets. If the dream was true, then the waitress at the diner was right. The crickets sure were bad this year. I'd never seen anything quite like it. Of course, at the time I hadn't put much thought into those dreams, as they seemed so insignificant when compared to the others I was having then, of Polly, of Pinky, whatever her name was. When morning came, I held off on asking about her again. I wasn't entirely sure I wanted to know anymore. Tom seemed to think the information would damage me in some way, and I certainly didn't need any more of that. I looked down at my thin hand and could see the bone of my index finger piercing out of the gummy flesh. The pain should have been excruciating, but it wasn't in the slightest. I felt nothing but the tingling sensation of numbness. Tom woke about twenty minutes after I did, 
He wiped the dust from his face and coughed for what seemed like days. He patted his pockets for cigarettes, pulled out one from the pack, and pushed the filter to his lips. Morning, he said, then lit up. I nodded at him and took a final breath of fresh air before the smoke leaking out from his nostrils tainted it. He looked up at the defeated machine before us. You think you can fix it? I asked. He laughed. What do you think I've been doing all this time, Kit? He said. Well, you've been out sleeping here and there, staggering around like some helpless fool, getting bullied by thugs, melting, falling into comas, you name it. I've been right here, fixing this goddamn thing. All it needs now is the battery. He points at me. You, kid, he said. You're up. The muscles in my arms and legs tensed. I was nervous I'd become too weak to fuel the machine. Half my body is numb, I said. I don't think I can do this. Perfect. The numbness means you're charged, he said. That last storm did you good. When I saw the lightning dart out of the sky, all bolts headed in the same direction, I knew exactly where to find you. I tried balling my thin hand into a fist, but only managed to get halfway there. I wasn't in total control of my body, that much was certain, and I wasn't ready for whatever it was I was about to do. I looked up at the machine. It was toppled over and half buried in the sand. I felt fear creep into my soul. This is me, Tom said, pointing at the carriage in the front. You're in back. Part 27 The machine sort of looked like a giant insect, dead in the sand. It had six appendages, two legs and four arms, and a head that jutted out from the middle of its torso, with red eyes and an exposed, wired electric brain. Its exoskeleton was made of some sort of metal, but looked more like bone from a distance. Each of its power-driven hands held a gun, two with fully automatic rifles and the other two gripped a larger gun, something completely unconventional, one that resembled the underbelly of a hornet, except with a sting a thousand times worse than that of any insect. I crawled up onto the rear, which was nothing more than a narrow slot, just wide enough for my body to slip inside. The space inside Bone Jacks was cramped, but not completely uncomfortable. My arms naturally slipped inside two cylindrical chambers in front of me, as if I somehow saw through the fog that was my memory and remembered exactly what it was I was supposed to do. I couldn't deny the intelligence of the involuntary actions of my arms. They certainly knew where to be, what to do, and how to do it. Because of this, for the first time since waking in the desert, I started to feel hope that my memory would eventually return and that it had perhaps started to already. I was feeling electric, and not just with an overwhelming feeling of hopefulness and joy, but truly electric. Surely it had something to do with the metal poles now gripped in my soft palms, located at the end of the chambers I'd slipped my arms into, because at first contact I instantly felt a rush of blood pulsing through me, or perhaps it was adrenaline. Whatever it was, I felt fantastic. There was a hollowed-out area in the chamber, just at eye level, that contained a thickly padded oval pillow. Clearly the space was designed for a face to be pressed against it, so that's exactly what I did. 
Immediately, I felt as if I had become a part of the machine myself. Once I placed my face into the brute's core, I was greeted with an electric vision of the landscape surrounding the machine. I had direct access to its eyes, the two red-lensed cameras poking outward through the deep sockets of its metal skull, and the sight brought on a surreal feeling within me, as if I had actually become the living, breathing bone jacks. There was an undeniable connection between me and the machine. We were one. Somehow, just through touch alone, my nervous system had interlaced with the inner workings of the machine and I was in control. I could make it move in any manner I desired through thought alone. I actually remembered this. It was as if the machine had rebooted my brain and my thoughts and memories all came rushing into me all in an instant. Although it felt that way in the moment, unfortunately I'd soon discover large gaps of information were still unaccounted for. Using my newfound knowledge, I pulled the brute up onto its feet, and as I did this, a faint humming sound buzzed in my ears, followed by the crackling of static. That's it, kid. I knew you were ready. Tom's voice spoke to me through an internal speaker mounted on the surface area located next to my left ear. This feels incredible, I said, feeling the electricity moving through me. Well, don't get your jollies off just yet. We have work to do, he said. Check out the radar. Razor Priest is just outside the city. I looked at the radar displayed in the top right corner of my electric vision. There was a single red dot pulsating, giving the precise location of the brute. According to radar, Razor Priest was just a few miles away. Looks like we're all that's left, kid, Tom said. No other blips on radar. If we take it down, we'll win Demolition Yahya. Whatever was about to happen, I now felt more than ready for it. The electricity brought on an overwhelming amount of energy that I could not wait to expel. So we just go to it then, huh? I asked, still feeling a little clouded. Nah, we've got a better way, he said. Check this out. The robot lifted its arms so that all four were stretched out in front of us. Then what looked to be a cloth sail dropped out of each limb catching what little breeze was present and instantly expanding in glorious breaths. Each pair of arms crossed over one another, and the serrated edges of the left rubbed against the smooth edges of the right, creating a haunting symphony of sound. The vibrations moved along the sails, which helped project the sound out into the distance. What is this, Tom? What are we doing? I asked. Making it come to us, he said. Neat little trick, huh? Learn this one from the crickets. They're bad this year. Can't avoid them. How will it know to find us? Don't they think they've already taken us out of the game? Yeah, they think they've won. Probably why they're so close to the city. Looks like they were headed back to claim their victory, he said, then chuckled. Probably already started celebrating the bastards. Once they hear this, they'll check their radars and see we're still very much in the game. Won't take them long to get here, just you watch. Man, I wish we could see their faces right now. You think they'll hear it? They're pretty far away, I asked. Oh, they'll hear it. Don't you worry. Part 28 I know it's last minute, but let's go over controls and strategy, Tom said. 
a rush of panic shuddered through me. Okay, I said, with a nervous quiver in my voice. You control about 90% of this thing. You tell it where to move, how to step, jump, roll, all that. You also control the outer pair of arms, the ones with the assault rifles attached. Got it? Got it, I said. Well, I'll keep an eye on the gauges and work the inner arms, the bug gun. Okay, so we're clear on controls. What about strategy? Do you believe in God? I thought about it for a second. I don't know, I said, disappointed I hadn't remembered as much as I had hoped. Well, if you find God in the next few minutes, praying is an option. There ain't much we can do but fight like all hell against that thing. That's all you've got? That's all I've got, he said. Oh, well, I guess just look out for that hammer swinging overhead. Don't let it pin us to the ground like last time. And avoid the impaler and the razors. Tom, seriously? He laughed. I hate to say it, kid, but I am serious as a heart attack. A lump formed in my throat. We'd be dead in minutes. This was it. My existence, as far as I knew, had only consisted of the events that happened between waking in the desert and what was happening now. All the confusion, emotions, the nightmares, or were they memories, were all I was and would ever be. Hell of a life. In the distance came the unmistakable sounds of a brute marching, and quite fast, if you ask me. It wasn't long before it was finally in our sights. There before us, in all its glory, was the Razor Priest. It appeared to be in rough condition due to all the fights it had been in throughout the game, but it was still operational. By the looks of it, the runners inside the priest were pissed as all hell to learn Tom and I survived the previous attack. Their machine stood a hair taller than ours and was easily twice as broad. It certainly looked more modern than ours, as it had a sleek red finish and a collage of spherical shapes worked into its design, making it seem like the thing was sent back through time to destroy us. It had no limbs. Instead, it moved across the desert via a hover device on its base. Where one would expect the arms to be located, there were only spheres with deep slots through the centers. Attached to its backside was the hammer Tom warned me about. It resembled a scorpion's tail in the way of its mechanics, resting behind at ease, but in a moment's notice it would whip over the brute's topside and pummel whatever stood in its path. The closer it moved toward us, the more nervous I became. We were the first to strike. As I stood motionless, my mind blank from the stress of seeing this nightmare play out in front of me, Tom fired the first shot from the bug gun. I was surprised to see the gun did not shoot in the typical way, bullets or lasers flying, but instead darted a harpoon that lodged itself into the neck of the priest. A wire was attached at the end of the harpoon that trailed back into the barrel of the gun. Bursts of electrodes carried through the wire, unloading into the brute, causing the machine to hiccup and spasm. It was able to rip the harpoon from its neck, though. It tossed the spear to the sand. Spinning razor blades about three feet in diameter rose through the slots in the spheres at each of its shoulders, and as it charged at us, the razors dug deep into the steel bones of bone jacks. Tom fired another shot. You awake back there, kid? 
Tom asked. I shook off the daze. Yeah, sorry. Just froze up, I said. Well, anytime you want to join in, that'd be great, he said. The priest again removed the harpoon from its body without much difficulty. I pulled Bone Jacks to the side and shot a barrage of bullets all in the priest's direction. Most of the hits landed, piercing the outer steel shell of its body, but they didn't seem to destroy any of the inner mechanics of the machine, as it wasn't phased in the slightest. Keep your eyes up, kid, Tom said, and just as he said it, the hammer behind Razor Priest swung overhead and caught our brute right in the middle of its back, just outside the cockpit area I was standing inside. The force of the hammer caused the entire backside to bend inward, pushing the edges of the steel wall directly into the flesh of my back. The pain wasn't immediate, but when it hit, I howled and struggled to get free from its grasp. I was pinned inside the brute, and the thought of being stuck inside the machine was enough to raise my state of panic to a whole new level. You okay? Tom asked. No, I've been hit. I'm bleeding out, I said. Bleeding out? How bad is it? You gonna make it, kid? I can't tell, but there's plenty of blood pouring out of me right now. I can feel it streaming down my legs, I said, trying to take comfort in feeling that no vital organs had been pierced, but it really wasn't helping to calm me any. As long as I could keep my panic under control, I could get through this. Do not go into shock, I told myself. Things will be okay. I couldn't convince myself it was true. Not sparing a second, the priest dug a razor through the torso of our brute, and Tom immediately lifted the arms, placing the bug gun behind its head and pulling it close. It was pinned now over our chest, an intelligent move in theory. However, it proved to be a fatal mistake. The priest swung the hammer overhead once again, hitting the same place it did before and pushing the metal even deeper into my flesh. I was done. I couldn't think anymore for all the pain, and as a result, Bone Jacks fell limp. Its knees fell to the sand. Tom held his grip on the machine, and it held its grip on us, holding the hammer against our back and steadily increasing the pressure. I felt close to losing consciousness, which is probably why I didn't feel a thing when the priest struck us with the impaler. It pierced our body seven times. Before fading into unconsciousness, I managed to utter a single word. Tom? Tom did not respond. Part 29 Peligro The cricket swarm covered the earth now, so much so that even the single lamppost in that empty desert was covered so thick with pests that it didn't appear to be putting off any light whatsoever. A sea of darkness within darkness. If one were to see, however, the unnerving vision of the earth opening deep within the swarm, it would have polluted their mind, causing them to feel as if they were slipping into some sort of madness in the way it all seemed too surreal, too nightmarish to truly exist. Those all-seeing eyes would also be privy to the haunting vision of a body being pulled out of the ground being pulled out by the crickets themselves, and unknowing, too, if the body was being pulled out from some grave or from some hell that existed deep below the sands of the desert. 
What evil brings this? The mind belonging to those eyes would think, because it would know these sorts of things didn't happen in real life. It couldn't exist. Things like this simply did not happen. This was an impossibility. A glitch. But yet, there it was. And the eyes would see the body belonged to a woman, a beautiful young woman with ivory skin and long flowing hair, so blonde it almost appeared white. The eyes would also see the body was without clothing, and that there was a tattoo around her right areola, a tattoo of a pink crescent moon. The insects carried the body deeper into the darkness, and those who didn't help followed. And supposing those eyes were still gazing upon the sand and the scene that just played out before it, then they would also find that the light from the lamppost had returned, once again illuminating the busted-up phone booth that stood on the sands next to it. And the ears belonging to those eyes would hear the ringing telephone just on the other side of the mangled doorway causing the feet belonging to those eyes to step closer, and when they stood close enough to the booth, they could peek inside and see the telephone was vibrating violently in its cradle with every ring. And if they were to look even closer, they would see the handwritten sign posted on the rectangular frame of the phone, just below the coin slot, the sign that read, To reach this payphone, dial 859-279-8094. The phone was ringing. The phone was ringing. The phone was ringing. Part 30 When I awakened, truly, finally awakened, Penelope was cradling my head in her arms. I couldn't see her doing this, of course, due to the blindness but I could hear her chanting some God-loving Mexican gospel something or other as she rocked me back into consciousness. Guess the goddamn electric night caused me to collapse and suffocate again. Seemed like it was happening more and more with every passing squall. I must have been out cold longer than usual that time, as she screamed with joy the moment she noticed I was awake. Must have been one hell of a storm! Goddamn if I couldn't remember it, though. My disgusting, fat-ass lump of a body must have been dancing all through the night. Oh, that sweet electric sky was all I'd lived for in those days. Penelope propped me up against the wall and proceeded to feed my maw with a handful of pills. I couldn't refuse. Hell, I couldn't even spit the damn things out. I was such a weak animal. She pushed my head up so my face was pointed toward the ceiling, then worked the muscles in my throat with her hands to make the pills go down. She continued to speak some happy-sounding Spanish words and even playfully patted my cheeks. That bitch. She was only happy because her job was safe. She was worried she'd have to spend another year in the unemployment office trying to get set up with some other unfortunate asshole who couldn't take care of himself and hoping she'd get someone with more riches next time. More things to stuff inside her bags and claim as her own. I knew her too well, that Penelope. She always was a clever thief. Then for the first time I'd ever experienced, anyway, Penelope finally said something I actually understood. Mr. Gordon, Mr. Gordon, he is awake, she said. 
Her English was terrible, so of course it sounded garbled and mumbled and wrong. All in an instant, I felt his presence in the room. I couldn't quite explain it, but even had I not heard Penelope call out his name, I would have realized exactly who it was in my door, inside my home. It was Gordon. The Gordon. For once in my life I was happy to be blind. The evil that man carried with him, it was enough to send a chill through my soul just knowing he was near. I couldn't imagine having to look him in the eyes. I wish I could have spoken to him, though. All the things I would have said. Bricker, he said to me. I hadn't heard my name uttered in so long I almost forgot it belonged to me. We have to reset, he continued. Pinky has gone off chart again. Pinky. Polly Pinkerton, 1978. Memories swirled. Gordon stepped closer to me, running his hand through the hair on the back side of my head. I know you don't remember, but we've reset before, he said. It's nothing to worry about. You'll feel a slight pinch, then nothing at all. Next thing you know, you'll be safe at the beginning again. He was right. I didn't remember. I hadn't the slightest idea what he was talking about. Oh, just so you know, the tests are coming along great. You've really proved yourself to be the lifeblood of this experiment. You're the battery that keeps this thing running. You should see my notes. I'll share them with you soon, maybe after two or three more rounds. How does that sound? I couldn't respond. I wasn't even sure I would, had I been able. All right, so here we go, he said. And then I felt the slight pinch he was referring to. It felt as if a needle had pierced clear through my brain. But the pain quickly faded. The reset for Channel 14 starts in 3, 2. And after a sharp, quick sting of electricity, my mind was suddenly somebody else's again. This has been Automated Daydreaming, The Five Lives of Bricker Cable Juice. Written by William Pauley III. Narrated by Connor Brannigan. Copyright 2016 and 2021 by William Pauley III. Production copyright by William Pauley III.